Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're, we were excited to resume in September, uh, a few weeks ago in New York City. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Jacob Helberg to SALT Talks. Uh, Jacob is a senior advisor at Stanford University, their Center on Geopolitics and Technology, and an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. He's also an entrepreneur and the co-chair of the Brookings Institution China Strategy Initiative. Uh, from 2016 to 2020, Jacob was in the trenches uh, studying a lot of the, the information warfare that's taking place. He was Google's internal global product policy, uh, head of their internal global product policy efforts to combat disinformation and foreign interference, including policy and enforcement processes against state-backed foreign interference misinformation and actors undermining election integrity. Uh, Jacob studied international affairs at George Washington University and received his Master of Science in Cybersecurity Risk and Strategy from New York University. He's also the author of a fantastic book uh, recently published called The Wires of War, Technology and the Global Struggle for Power, which we're going to talk a lot about today. I know Anthony has read the book and was fascinated by it, hence our invitation for Jacob to come on the show. Uh, the Anthony I refer to, of course, is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman he's, of SALT. He's being nice right now, Jacob. He gets meaner as this thing goes on. Yeah, Go I wasn't going to mention. Dorothy. I wasn't going to mention your your eleven day stint in politics. Can I mention uh, that I got fired from the White House? Is that how we're going to start? I, I wasn't going to use the <laughs> F word, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, there's a lot of different F words. That that's that's my least favorite F word is the firing one, Jacob. But by the way, this is a phenomenal book. Uh, I would love to send this to every member of Congress. Unfortunately, the Congress likely doesn't read. Some of them are probably illiterate. But this book is a phenomenal treatise because it explains what's going on and it also recommends a path forward, which I think is a frankly an optimistic path. But I want to start with China. Uh, we're in the White House Situation Room. I'm new to the job. Uh, I'm the President of the United States. You're briefing me on China. Go ahead. Well, China is engaged in a gray war against the United States. A lot of people in the foreign policy community have called it a Cold War, and there is a whole quibble about whether or not the word Cold War is appropriate. I think, you know, taking a step back, it's important to look at what was the definition of the world of the word and the expression Cold War when it was originally. Uh, came up with. And George Orwell actually helped define it back in the 40s and 50s, and he called it a peace that is no peace. And by every people's plain understanding of English, the U.S. and China are, in an, in, are not in an authentic peace today. I like the expression gray war because today the way that this struggle is playing out is through gray zone conflict in the murky gray zone between war and peace, the reason is because, because the weapons of war have changed, because technology has changed so much. The reason I think that this is so important is because the gray war has become a defining feature of international politics. It basically drives every commercial deal that's taking place, every military deal. It drives the agenda in Europe, the United States, and in, in the Asia Pacific. And at the end of the day, these are these conversations are not limited to just you know, grand uh, UN halls and, and uh, you know, conference rooms. They're really about what people can and can't do in their living rooms. They're about the jobs that people have at home. Uh, we've seen 66,000 manufacturing plants in the United States uh, evaporate between 2000 and 2010. I know, you know, you've passionately talked about um, growing up in a blue collar neighborhood uh, in New York, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, my grandfather actually worked at a Jeep factory back in the 50s. And I think for a long time, there was kind of, you know, people, a lot, a lot of people took it for granted that it's almost like a part of a natural process that these jobs would either get shut down or shipped overseas. And I think now you're seeing a healthy debate with people double clicking on that 
assumption and asking why is it that we can't make things in this country anymore? And is it the right thing for the future of the American worker and American families and for the national security of the country that so much of our supply chains are reliant on a single country that ultimately is very, very abrasive to everything that we stand for? Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's very well said. I want to tell I you know in reading your book, I, I actually took some notes. I want to test a theory on you. Tell me what I've gotten right and wrong. Uh, so we had a situation with China. They were deeply impoverished. Uh, they were also an adversary of the Soviet Union, even though they were both communists. Uh, Richard Nixon goes over there to try to create an opening there. He recognizes how poor they are, so he's like not a big threat to the U.S. Soviet Union is. He allows them to have some economic benefits and trade agreements, and it creates an opening for the Chinese. Uh, And then almost in a Trojan horse kind of a way, they start to build their system, but they cry poverty to the U.S. and the West. We need your help. We need you to help us uh, urbanize and bring all of these people out of poverty. Uh, Please bring us into the World Trade Organization. This is a peaceful rise of China. And as they get more power, as you and I both know, with power comes levels of hubris, uh, and they start to centralize more. They start to control more, take more liberties away from their people. They've got these concentration camps with the Uyghurs. They've got the issue with Tibet. And now all of a sudden, we're seeing the ugly gnashing teeth of what looked like a polite puppy 25 years ago. What did I get wrong? I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, the 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 last forty years, we have been very used to studying history, uh, the history of American foreign policy of the last forty to fifty years, uh, through a very American centric lens. But I think an interesting part of the story that is now coming more to the forefront as more attention, you know, and, and public scrutiny is being brought to the U.S. Chinese relationship is the Chinese side of that lens and. You know, China very astutely uh, reproached itself to um, uh, the United States when its tensions with the Soviet Union were escalating uh, because the Soviet Union was very nervous about a rising China. And now it's doing the the inverse. It's uh, coming up on the heels of the United States and it's really trying to uh, basically use the 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 you know modern day Russia. Uh, to try to avoid having a two-front, you know, great power uh, struggle on its hands. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, China. You pointed out, you know, China's uh, whitewashing of history, and China is a country for a long time. It's tried to sell us this idea of a peaceful rise, and you know, so many other narratives that are, are cognitively contradictory, like the fact that we don't have to worry about them because they're poor, but at the same time, uh, we can't stop. We shouldn't even try to stop them because they're unstoppable. Or their rise is unstoppable. The, the the China and the CCP is a regime that has more border disputes. Uh, it, it you know it has border disputes with seventeen countries than the number of countries that it actually shares a border with, which is fourteen. So the notion that they're such a peaceful country is is really you know fundamentally at odds with the reality on the ground of all the various disputes that the Chinese government has on its hands. And if you look at the fact that they built the largest fleet. Uh, you know, in the world with uh, over 350 ships, it kind of, uh, it raises a lot of questions as to why a peaceful country would need so many warships. Yeah. And so I want to keep going because I think this is important because uh, you write about their long-term philosophy and they're viewing the world in 100-year units of time, that being minutes. Unfortunately, um, our Congress is viewing things in like, uh, cable news fights. Uh, we have a two, four-year election cycle or a six-year election cycle. They're thinking about 100 years. You know, the China plan 2049 is an example on the 100th anniversary of their takeover of the mainland. Um, it's, it's important to point out to people, the Chinese had 30% of the GDP in 1830 of the global GDP. They went to 2% in 1960. They're coming back to 30% of the GDP. How big is the threat it's uh, for democracy, it's enormous. And uh, the reason is that I don't think you can separate, you know, habit, behavior habits of uh, the Chinese political system at home will ultimately mirror uh, China's behavior habits abroad. And if you look at what they're doing at home, whether it's cracking down on, you know, private enterprise, 
um, vanishing, you know, dozens of billionaires now that have basically gone missing or have gone silent. Why, why, why do you think they're um, doing that, Jacob? What, the billionaires are vanishing. They're abrogating things like DD, taking them off of their listings, taking apps away from the uh, ecosystem of the app sites. Well, so the interesting thing is that there actually isn't anyone that I've spoken to in the United States, um, even those that uh, have incredible sources of information that really knows uh, Xi Jinping's motives, because a fundamental attribute of an autocratic system is that it really just depends on one person, which is Xi Jinping, and we can't read into his heart. But what we can see is the effect of what he's doing, which we can see in plain sight. And he, it's a massive consolidation of power. And so I think most people's interpretation of uh, the disappearance of billionaires and the crackdown on uh, a lot of you know modern day tech companies is that he felt threatened that a lot of these individuals were starting to represent an alternative power base to his political party and control. And so I think for him, you're seeing you know, uh, uh, an autocratic leader that is just like so many of his predecessors throughout history, stepping into a new phase of his rule, which is a phase that's increasingly paranoid, increasingly, uh, you know, autocratic and repressive. Uh, he's now mirroring some of the darkest parallels in history, shaving, you know, you alluded to Uyghurs earlier, so, uh, Uyghur women are seeing their heads shaved and you know put on trains and sent off to uh, so-called re-education camps. It's it's really really terrifying when you see the practices that he's engaging at at home. And I think for a lot of people abroad, it raises the question: you know, he's doing this to his own people. Wh who's to say what he'll do to people of other countries? And you know, you kind of see the way that he's attacked Australia, the largest cyber attack in Australian history. He's, um, you know, invaded parts of the Indian border and killed 20 Indian soldiers. And in response, when India responded, uh, did a cyber attack on an Indian city, which took out power on over 20 million people, including hospitals in the middle of the pandemic. It's really, really scary, the lengths at which he's um, uh, been assertive. And I think when you look at his big picture, of wanting to dominate, dominate industries, dominate politically, um, dominate you know the internet infrastructure of of our information infrastructure through seventy five billion dollars in subsidies uh, in Huawei. Uh, the last thing I think any American should uh, conclude from that is that this is a guy that should have more power than he already has. So let's go to him for a second, because I think his life story is fascinating. His father was a general in Mao's army. Uh, his father had a falling out with Mao, like often happens with these paranoid autocrats. He was sent into a camp himself. Uh, the, the young uh, President Xi uh, grew up on the out, uh, but he was a princeling uh, as it related to the Chinese communist rule. He worked his way back. How do you think that life experience has affected his judgment and his leadership uh, principles and strategy? Well, I think his experience shows how incredibly politically astute he is. And one of the facts that I always find so striking um, about his uh, you know, political uh, philosophy is the fact that he started his tenure uh, when he took control of the CCP uh, by spending a lot of time talking about the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, analyzing the, the sources and the reasons for why the Soviet Union fell, basically kind of, you know, uh, creating a sort of mini lecture series inside of the CCP as to uh, lessons learned from the fall of the Soviet Union and how the CCP should avoid, you know, the same fate. And I think that says so much about uh, the fact that this is a highly analytical individual that spends a lot of time reading history and analyzing history. And this is someone that understands that today with modern technology, uh, uh, control is power and internet information infrastructure is control. And so the Chinese government's subsidies of $75 billion in Huawei isn't because you know, it's not out of charity or because they want to bring the internet to the world. It's because for them, there are some real benefits to uh, other countries throughout the world using Huawei. And, um, and you know, as I write in the book, uh, a lot of those benefits basically 
entail controlling everything that runs on top of that internet infrastructure, including every company's IP, uh, the deepest secrets of every politician in a given country, their sexual escapades, their corrupt dealings, their personal communications. And there's a 2020, this was corroborated by a 2020, by a 2012 assessment uh, uh, carried out by a Dutch telecom called KPN, which actually showed that Huawei had access to everything that ran on top of its network. And uh, those revelation, uh, those revelations were only made public earlier this year. So it's really worrisome. It kind of redefines our traditional conceptions of sovereignty. It seems like uh, both sides of the aisle uh, are consolidated on this issue at this moment. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think it's actually um, a, a, a true cause of, for optimism in the United States that for all the talk and media focus on hyperpartisanship, and there's a lot of political polarity, there actually is some degree of convergence, of, of political convergence in the U.S. between uh, people that are very liberal and people that are very conservative, because uh, an interesting thing that's happened over the last 20 years is that China has actually offended uh, so comprehensively so many aspects of American society from, you know, manufacturing to human rights to if you care about the environment, you know, China is the worst polluter in the world. Uh, if you care about, you know, if you're a big tech company, China's probably hacked you more times than you care to disclose. Uh, so it's actually unified people from very different political strands in the United States. What worries me more is that China has civil military fusion and we have civil military confusion. And there is a real cultural gap that often leads to a disconnect between our technology community and our policymaking community. And as I write in the book, part of that, I mean, it's, I, I think the source of that is really cultural. Um, the average age of, uh, you know, the members of the Senate is 63. The average age of an employee at Google or Apple is 32, 31. So these are people that came of age in very, very different uh, life experiences. And a lot of the times it leads to um, a lot of disconnect. And But I do think that it's possible to bridge those two communities. And I think it's incredibly important for the future of the country that you have some of the best engineers working on the hardest engineering problems, uh, have a better appreciation for very important national security priorities and vice versa. People doing national security, understanding better the inner workings of, uh, of our technology community. So I want to, I want to, I want to, I mean, this, this is, I think there's so many great parts of the book. I'm probably not going to be able to get to all of it, but what you're talking about is obviously reasons to be optimistic, but you also talk about a changing landscape for the definition of sovereignty. And basically, sovereignty is evolving uh, as a result of the technological ecosystem that's being overlaid on these governments. Could you describe that to our viewers and listeners? Absolutely. Um, so for um, most of our lifetimes and for most of history, Sovereignty, a lot of the times, really boil down to troops on the ground. Uh, countries having armies being able to defend and assert their borders and assert a, a certain political system within a geographic area through force, uh, if needed. And the interesting thing is that today, because of technology, um, political sovereignty is no longer just determined by boots on the ground. It's determined by wires in the ground. And uh, those wires are fiber optic cable wires that are basically the physical backbone of the internet. The reason that, that uh, these wires have an enormous impact on a country's political sovereignty is that uh, if you have a, a foreign country that makes no distinction between its public and private sector like China, that has access and control over all the information in another country, um, the journalists in that country, the politicians in that country, the judges, it can basically pull levers uh, in that third party country and turn that country effectively into a puppet satellite state. And uh, you're, you know, we get sl occasional slight glimpses of that in the US through the fact that there hasn't been a Hollywood movie produced here. Um, you know, in, in over 20 years or when the NFL has to go on, on an apology tour, 
Imagine if our information infrastructure was controlled by the Chinese and the Chinese actually had, uh, you know, all of the medical history or the, you know, personal, uh, uh, personal details of the lives of all of our reporters and all of our judges. I mean, they could pull the strings of our country in surreptitious ways that we've never even dreamed of. And uh, to some extent, you know, that's probably why they are so aggressively pushing uh, this infrastructure in parts of the world that people don't pay attention to, like Africa, for example. Okay, I I I, I get all that. It makes it makes a lot of lot of sense to me. I want to be Chinese now. I want to be a member of the Chinese Communist Party. I want you to explain to our viewers and listeners why they're taking this approach, what they're thinking about it. And then I want to be a Chinese citizen. Let's say that I'm a wealthy business person that likes individual liberty. What's my concern? And then, therefore, what's the tension inside of China? Well, I'm happy you bring this up because I think that this debate, approaching this debate, it's really important to draw the distinction that a lot of the criticism that I direct at China in the book is really directed at the CCP and not at the Chinese people. And the Chinese people are the first victims of a lot of the oppressive policies of the CCP. And we're incredibly fortunate in the U.S. to have a very, very dynamic uh, Chinese diaspora. And um, but ultimately, you know, the the basic bargain that the Chinese government has had uh, is, you know, we're an autocratic system. Um, we rule with an iron fist, but we're going to provide you a better standard of living, and we're going to provide you with, you know, six percent, five percent. Once upon a time, it was up to fourteen percent GDP growth, and today you're kind of seeing cracks uh, in that basic bargain, and so they're really tight as the economy is slowing. You're seeing the government really tightening the grip. And, you know, to answer a question, if you're uh, a wealthy Chinese business person, or even if you're a Chinese founder, I think what's really scary is that once upon a time, like 10 years ago, if you were a Chinese founder, you could actually hope and aspire to pursue what Xi Jinping ironically called the Chinese dream, starting Tencent, you know, Didi, a company that's super successful, that's widely used by millions, uh, and you know, in some cases, hundreds of millions of Chinese users. Today, you're basically seeing a lot of these iconic Chinese entrepreneurs being locked up and silenced. So it's really changed. It's turning the Chinese dream into a Chinese nightmare for a lot of <laughs> successful people in China. And I think it's um, you know, it's going to have long-term repercussions because for, if you're young and bright and ambitious, you're going to think twice about starting a tech company because what success looks like is really changing in China. If if you're really successful, you might end up in the crosshairs of the CCP and that may not look very good for you. So um, I think that is uh, definitely a, a long-term impact that's being caused by this crackdown. And, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, um, intelligence authorities, people in, the, in our intelligence agencies that I'm close to, including people that are not there anymore, like H.R. McMaster would say that uh, she looked at what happened to Donald Trump as a result of uh, Zuckerberg and Dorsey and social media. He made a decision that they hurt his presidential campaign and his retention of power. And that was another reason why he cracked down so hard on some of these billionaires. Before I, mm-hmm. before I turn it over to John Dorsey, who has a, an, another series, an, an additional layer of questions, I want to ask you about the alliance, the Western alliance, the French, the Germans, the British. What is the Western alliance conjoined with America's view of China and where are we going? Because you know, one of the things the Chinese are doing with the Belt and Road system is they're giving a lot of money out to a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that um, one of the um, most important message that can come out of Washington uh, to, so I think, first of all, let me just preface this with, I think an interesting dynamic that we're seeing today is our uh, traditional definition of what counts as Western, what we mean by Western countries is changing a bit. 
it's no longer just Western Europe. It's also including democratic countries like Australia. You know, some academics use the word Western to even include Japan and South Korea. And so that's just a reflection. That change in nomenclature is a reflection of the fact that the world is changing politically. And a lot of the political action is going on in, in East Asia. Um, and but I, and it, you know, to dial back to the initial point that I was going to make, I think in light of this new dynamic, one of the most important messages that Washington can bring to our traditionally, you know, traditional Western allies like France and Germany is that the U.S. isn't turning away from Europe, but is turning with Europe to this new, uh, you know, center stage and of you know this new political theater in East Asia, and. Um, you know, obviously the recent AUKUS deal uh, had, uh, you know, the rollout was um, caused a little bit of friction with uh, our, you know, in oldest ally, France. But I think it's important to stress that grand strategic moves are always going to be a little bit rocky. There's no question that this could have been better handled, but this deal had is, is absolutely a net positive. I mean, it's when you think about the fact that if I, I write a lot in the book about, you know, the main set, the topic of my book is the Great War, which talks about under uh, underwater uh, submarine fiber optic cables and semiconductors. You can't protect Taiwan, which is the hub, the global hub of semiconductor production, if you don't have submarines. And uh, you can't protect the integrity of... Um, of our of submarine internet cables without submarines because the Russians and the Chinese send submarines underwater to basically tap cables, the routers of cables uh, in various parts of the world. And actually uh, a big job of the US military is the protection of those cables. So having our allies beefing up the capacity of our allies to have submarines and take part in this regional defense is actually incredibly useful. Um, it's really regrettable that uh, things played out the way that they did uh, with France, but that story is still, you know, unfinished, and there might be, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, trade bargaining going on to see if, you know, uh, the U.S. and France can kiss and make up, and uh, and ultimately remind each other that, you know, the, what unites the France and the U.S. isn't just cold a transactional relationship of interests, but it's really shared values, and France's you know, des political destiny is very much aligned with uh, with America's. And that's the rule of law, democracy, Fr French companies being able to compete on a level playing field, being able to take uh, someone that breaks laws to court and rely on a fair judgment. Um, and, and also, I mean, you know, Europe has been uh, uh, a very uh, under-discussed victim of deindustrialization, just like the United States. So uh, there's a lot in common there for those allies to to find common ground. Well, I mean that that's my hope. Uh, la last quick question. I'm going to turn it over to John. 2017, President Xi gave a speech at the World Economic Forum. I was there for that. Actually, I was uh, a part of Trump's transition team, representing the administration at that uh, forum. Uh, he sounded like Abraham Lincoln. In the speech, he was talking about freedoms and civil liberties and the uh, the individual. Do you think he could make that speech today? I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think you know a common uh, a common pattern, um, as uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski once pointed out, of of uh, autocratic and and um, of autocratic leaders is to. Uh, say one thing and do another uh, is to, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski says, you know, that a, proud, a, a very pervasive feature in autocratic leaders is to appeal for peace while doing everything to extinguish peace. And, but, you know, the high level uh, lesson is that they basically, it's very common for dictators to say one thing and, you know, talk a great game while doing things that don't match at all what they say. And that was exactly what he was doing in that speech. He was talking about globalization. He was talking about, you know, um, all of these different lofty ideas that get a lot of applause by the press and by um, a lot of our business leaders, but the it's uh, you know our, our business community has been left at the altar and bruised many many times by the CCP, uh, and unfortunately you know the the reality now is becoming hard to ignore with just how incredibly repressive the regime is. John Dorsey, I know you have questions, but I want to hold the book up one more time. The Wires of War, Technology and the Global Struggle for Power. 
Jacob, you wrote a brilliant book. Okay. And I'm not just saying that you decided to join Salt Talks, but I, I love the book. It's made me smarter and it's made me more conversant in what's going on around the world, specifically with China. So I want to thank you for the book. And I want people to go out and buy and actually read the book. With that, I'll turn it over to John Darcy. All right. It's prime. Don't time, be saying Jacob. great question and stuff like that. It'll drive me crazy. Okay. Um, Thank you, Anthony, for that that uh, great opening of questions. But I have a few follow-ups for you, Jacob. And one of the big questions I have is, you know, anybody who studies Chinese culture, which you obviously have, and, and I would assume members of our foreign policy establishment and, and, and people in Washington would understand Chinese culture. One of the great axioms from the art of war um, is that, you know, you appear weak when you are strong and appear strong when you are weak. And China, like Anthony mentioned, was this docile puppy uh, that's now gnashing its teeth and you write in the book about how Washington in general has gone from denial now to despair, meaning they said China is not a threat. We don't have to worry about it. Uh, you know, we're going to let them into the World Trade Organization. We're going to let them violate many of the statutes of the WTO. And now they're saying, oh, now it's too late. You know, there's nothing we can do about it. They've they've become too powerful. Why did so many people in Washington miss it? And is it too late to do something about it? Um, well, I'm not going to say that that's a great question, but uh, it's an important one. And uh, I think you that say it's a great question. I'm just <laughs> I'm just teasing. OK, the guy gets fan mail, Jacob. OK, Bob, that, uh, that is that is a, a like, great question that almost rises to the level of Anthony's questions. So <laughs> turn me into Joe Kernan picking on Andrew Sorkin at this point. But go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think that, um, you know, you what you're seeing today with this extraordinary, I mean, for the central argument for why so many people just feel like we don't even stand a fighting chance with the Chinese is the central argument always comes back to, but they have 1.6 billion people. And if, you know, if all those people have the same average income as in the United States, they're basically unstoppable because their economy will be so much bigger than ours. I think that's, you know, yeah, that's, that's an, that's a compelling argument, but at the end of the day, what that argument really misses is the power of ideas and the fact that what you're seeing today with this crackdown across Chinese society is the fact that you have a authoritarian leader that boasts himself in front of the world surrounded by armed men, cannons, you know, tanks and airplanes, but that is terrified of words and thoughts of uh, words spoken at home, of, of words spoken abroad, and, and thoughts stirring at home. And at the end of the day, you're really seeing the cracks in that system. And I think that's uh, a huge cause for optimism in the United States, that there is so much more to this competition than just a raw number of people and GDP. The, the entire Chinese system, as Xi Jinping you know, warned all the members of the CCP when he took power could completely uh, uh, unravel and fall apart if people lose faith in that system and if people start asking, um, start asking for legitimate, you know, demands for personal liberties, personal and civil liberties. And you know, the Chinese, the CCP has gone through extraordinary lengths to brand individual freedom as an American concept. Um, I think there's a lot of examples throughout the world, whether it's in Japan, in Taiwan, in South Korea, uh, where you actually have uh, countries that come from very different cultures that operate in a democratic system and democracy isn't inherently American. It's, you know, it's reflective of uh, instincts, human instincts that are universal, which is our ability to disagree on issues without getting killed for it, uh, our ability to express ideas and pursue you know, your, your dreams, if you want to be an artist, if you want to, you know, be a merchant, whatever that may be. And I think a lot of people in China, as you know, they, uh, as you know, the power of the question and questioning authority is a very compelling thing. And I think, you know, you're seeing a dictator that's really, really afraid of that. Right. Um, are those cracks starting to show? You mentioned that in your, in your conversation with Anthony about, you know, GDP growth is falling. They're now trying to appease people, potentially sort of commoners in the country by cracking down on billionaires who have obviously extracted a lot of value. We know several strategists, uh, Katan Patel uh, being one that Anthony referenced when we were doing our prep call, 
um, who says that there is more balkanization and division among the provinces within the, the population than, than China will you know, obviously allow to leak out of the country, part of the reason why they're so strict with the internet uh, domestically. But do you see, based on your research, cracks starting to show and, and how could that manifest itself? Absolutely. And the the biggest manifestation of it is that a lot of the things that Xi Jinping has done at home and abroad has uh, won him a lot of enemies. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of people in China don't like the fact that he's locking up, you know, so many people left and right, whether it's billionaires or uh, Uyghurs and Tibetans and, you know, just, you know, working family dissidents that have different ideas than him. Uh, abroad, he's basically, you know, the whole concept of um, warrior wolf diplomacy has uh, won him the antagonism of Australia, of, you know, Japan, South Korea, even Europe, which was really, really determined to have a good relationship with China, you know, just a few years ago, um, is now revisiting a lot of uh, its relationship with China. And so for the U.S., that is an enormous opportunity to um, seize on this window that we have, you know, I, I think it's a window of about a decade uh, to uh, really determine the course of the next century. Um, I think, you know, for demographic reasons and for, um, uh, um, for uh, secular growth cycle reasons, China has about 10 years before it either reaches escape velocity or starts stagnating because of, you know, its demographic trends, its aging of the population and so forth. And, uh, and I think that what we do now is going to have a huge impact on whether or not they actually do reach escape velocity or not. And unfortunately, unless we're honest about the fact that this is an existential competition for us. And I call, I use the word war because it means, because we have to treat it with the urgency and determination and, you know, the clear sightedness that there's going to be a winner and a loser. Um, unless we acknowledge all of that, um, we're probably not going to be, uh, we're probably not going to come out on top. And, and ultimately our goal should be to win this thing. Right. And, and even in places like Africa, Anthony referenced Belt and Road, you're starting to see some of these leaders question deals that have been made, uh, you know, for the Chinese to get access to raw materials uh, and things like that, because they're also shipping in Chinese workers rather than than really accruing the value locally uh, that they promised as part of those deals. But I want to shift gears a little bit to how, as a country, uh, we can fix this, you know, sort of fix our own house, if you will, is that we have ignored our own high-tech infrastructure, high-tech infrastructure manufacturing needs for a long time. And now, these supply chain issues that sort of reared their head beginning as a result of the pandemic, but uh, have extended well beyond that uh, are starting to get uglier and, and we're starting to become more aware of them. We had Ro Khanna, uh, the representative from Silicon Valley, as well as Jeb Bush, former governor of, of Florida, at our recent SALT conference for a conversation about that topic, about you know maintaining our competitiveness and, and rebuilding U.S. high-tech infrastructure. Ro Khanna was the sponsor of the Endless Frontier Act, that turned into the U.S. Competition and Innovation Act, which is a, a piece of legislation that was recently passed, five years, $250 billion to invest in U.S. high-tech infrastructure and infrastructure manufacturing. Um, what can we do? I mean, that sounds like a big number, but it really isn't in the scope of what China's doing and, and the things we need to do to catch up on things mm -hmm. like AI. But what do we need to do as a country from a private sector perspective, from a public sector perspective, to catch up to China and get our house in order from a high-tech infrastructure perspective? These are really good um, questions, by the way. Okay, I have to admit that. They're okay? great questions. These are really good questions. I didn't want to say I, I, it, but no, no, you you can say it, and I'm dying to get the answer to that. Actually, that's a good question, John Dorsey. Thank you. Uh, Ro Khanna actually uh, has been uh, a leader in this space, a thought leader in this space, and you know, as you point out, one of the architects of the Endless Frontiers Act, uh, and really gets it. And in fact, he actually. Um, wrote uh, an incredible short review of the book, which was uh, so exciting. But um, but I think one of the things that at, at a very high level, I'll talk about high level principles and then more tactical things that we can do as a country. At a very high level, first from a first principle standpoint, it's really important that we change our nomenclature and that we acknowledge that it's a cold war or a gray war, but that it's a war. 
And, you know, wars have never been binary. I think a lot of people, it's a, it's a word that a lot of people are afraid, but the reason that I think it's so important that we use that word over competition is because we're competitors with Germany and Japan, but we're fundamentally not at war. We're economic competitors. We compete. Competition implies that you're competing on a level playing field, following rules that all parties uh, observe and agree to. With China, there are no rules. They have thrown the rule book out the window. Uh, when your existential you know, life is on the line, when the survival of your political system is on the line, it's not a competition, it's a war. And when the outcome of uh, this struggle is going to be uh, one of the two players completely politically political domination, um, it's it's very much a war. It's not a competition. Uh, it's not just about economics. What we're talking about is really politics. And so, and the reason that I think it's important for us to shift this nomenclature is because there actually might be we need to be united, and we need to uh, uh, this needs to be the prism. Um, that organizes everything that we do abroad and at home to mobilize the resources and the will to actually be successful, just like any other war. When we fought World War II, everything that we did at home and abroad was reorganized towards winning the war. And arguably, uh, for vast stretches of the Cold War, uh, a lot of the things that we did, whether it's you know the military buildup um, uh, that Reagan did, or you know a lot of uh, a, a lot of initiatives, domestic and uh, foreign, were organ were were uh, designed with a view of winning the Cold War, and and I think that we've kind of reached a similar juncture at this point, and saying that it's just a competition, and I don't think we'll ever mobilize a sense of urgency uh, to. Um, to, to galvanize uh, members of the private sector as well as members of the policy-making community to do what's needed to be successful. So that's from a high-level high principle standpoint. At a tactical level, one of the most important things that we can do abroad is we need to deglobalize what I call China's eye of Sauron. And it's a bit of a dramatic term, but if you have, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, in Lord of the Rings, there's this you know concept of the eye of Sauron that is all-seeing, all-knowing, and all places at all times. And here, what's kind of, um, uh, you know, both funny and scary at the same time is that China is basically sort of building very, a very similar thing with over 400 million CCTV cameras that have facial recognition. It's, it's basically de-anonymizing the internet. And um, through its control of internet infrastructure, it's basically building a centrally controlled system that allows the CCP to see all things at all times in all places. And if we want to put, protect democracy, if we want to protect the sovereignty of our allies and of other countries that we do business with, we have to deglobalize uh, China's plans to expand its autocratic internet. So that's one of the most important things that we can do abroad. Um, in the book, I talk about a series of steps that we can do to do that, from whether it's you know foreign aid or, or trade partnerships with. Um, Europe, uh, like because Ericsson and, and Nokia are obviously European companies that are competitors to Huawei. At home, as you pointed out in your question, uh, engaging in efforts to reindustrialize is incredibly important because the deindustrialization of the United States has, in a gray war environment, meant that we've been very disarmed. And um, as I talk about in the book, and I wrote a foreign policy article, I think that in this new geopolitical struggle, deindustrialization is disarmament. It's it's uh, effectively uh, makes our country incredibly vulnerable and exposed to coercion, uh, to uh, blackmail. Um, I mean, if, if you take, for example, Apple, which is an iconic American company that you know has a market cap of on some days of the week two trillion dollars, uh, it's incredibly vulnerable to. Um, uh, a scenario that's really scary, which is that, you know, what would happen if the CCP told Apple, uh, why don't you take off, you know, why don't you take down these applications or give us the cell phone numbers of these dissidents or uh, all of the production of your iPhones are going to get delayed. And the Apple executive team would have a really thorny decision on their hands about whether or not to go public with it, about whether to just comply quietly with it. Um, so reindustrializing at home in key sectors should absolutely be a top priority. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be made in the United States. That means that there should be key sectors that should gravitate towards uh, markets, maybe part in the United States, maybe part in allied countries, 
but in a space that we trust where we're going to trust the integrity of uh, the equipment that's being built. And um, I, you know, uh, when I supported Pete Buttigieg, uh, um, him and some of his uh, foreign policy advisors at the time during the primary campaign, we were talking about this concept of an allied industrial base. And that's a concept that I think has a lot of legs because at the end of the day, uh, we want some things to be manufactured here, but not all things can, um, uh, that's not going to be economically feasible for all things, but there's going to be a bucket of things where we don't care where, it's, where it comes from. There's going to be a bucket of things that are so critical that they have to be manufactured in the United States. And there's a bucket of things that can come from an allied space where it just can't be manufactured in China, but it can be manufactured in India and in South Korea. Samsung makes a lot of uh, advanced electronics uh, in South Korea. So there's there's going to be a, a lot of legwork that's going to have to go into classifying you know, that the universe of products that are critical or non-critical to national security and how uh, the the policy, you know, uh, regime approaches all of that. Well, if it was a good question, that was a fantastic answer and obviously something that you have studied uh, in great depth. And, and I hope that people like Ro Khanna and yourself uh, continue to have more, more of the ear of policymakers in Washington uh, to get that done, because it seems like an absolute no-brainer. You talked about Apple. I mean, I, I uh, there was a recent New York Times, the Daily Podcast about this exact topic about how, you know, I'm an Apple user. I've had the new iPhone 13 here, but they have done a lot of kowtowing to China that doesn't make it into the press a lot because uh, Apple, very powerful, very shrewd, but they have they have uh, done some things that would probably make a lot of Americans blush if they if they truly understood the compromises they've made. So you'd think as a company they would try to to de-risk themselves on that front. But uh, staying in sort of the uh, the high tech conglomerate. So you you were at Google, like I mentioned in the open. Part of your job was combating disinformation related to election integrity and just general disinformation that was being perpetuated through uh, the U.S. Internet. Uh, another Lao Tzu, this will, this will be my last question, my last Lao Tzu quote from Art of War is that the supreme art of war is to subdue your enemy without actually fighting. And so the Russians realize that they can't match our economic might or our military might, frankly. Uh, so they're using disinformation. The Chinese are doing the same thing. Uh, they're using social media to create these echo chambers to sow division. How prevalent is that? And what can we do to combat it and, and eliminate that echo chamber effect? Before you answer that, again, and I'm not being cheeky. So Lao Tzu is the Eastern philosopher of Tao, but you're you're actually quoting Sun Tzu from the Order of War. Sun Tzu, sorry. Okay, just helping you out there, okay? You know, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll record doing, that so I don't look dumb. Yeah, of course, they're going to delete that, but you're doing a beautiful job, okay? All right, go ahead, Jacob. But the, the, guy so, does ask great, the guy does ask great questions, and I'm actually listening very carefully. Incredible. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Um, Keep going. So go an interesting, one of the things that I noticed uh, when I worked at Google was, um, so I, I, uh, I was the point person for their... Uh, internal global news policies. And, um, you know, in the uh, late stages of 2016, that quickly turned into what do we do about uh, state-backed foreign interference, misinformation, uh, a lot of these new and emerging trends that, um, you know, had never really been that big of an issue in uh, the technology ecosystem. And one of the things that uh, became incredibly apparent in the following, you know, 24 months was, the tech industry as a whole was really being caught in the crosshairs of uh, of a new geopolitical environment where companies were where countries and governments were starting to view technology companies as both proxies and targets of their political power. So Putin, for example, gave this very dramatic uh, you know speech where he noted in his speech that uh, the the country that controls AI is going to dominate you know the world in the future. And Xi Jinping basically alluded to the same thing. And so it was interesting because you saw these autocratic regimes that were at the same time trying to hack companies to get all their secret sauce and IP and, and treated companies like targets. But at the same time, we're also using them as proxies by trying to use these platforms to extend their influence abroad. Um, and so, um, and so it's, uh, you know, to, to, to answer your question, I mean, it, it's, it, it was something that was incredibly apparent in uh, 2016 and has become only more prevalent since. 
Um, uh, back in 2016, the main player in this game was Russia. But since then, we've seen a whole slew of other players enter the space from uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran. Uh, you know, obviously, China is now probably the 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 lead player in all spaces. You know, on the front end, on the back end. Uh, I mean, they have state-sponsored media and uh, bots and trolls all over the internet uh, on on our on platforms that on American platforms that they have banned in China. And obviously on the back end, um, they are copying our technology and, you know, whether it's Xiaomi that makes an, an, uh, an Apple, an iPhone imitation uh, device or, uh, or Huawei that basically, uh, you know, receives massive subsidies to, to build uh, fiber optic internet cables. <clears throat> they're, they're very active in all theaters of the Gray War. Well, it's fascinating stuff. I'm sure we could go on for a couple more hours around all the different uh, high-level thoughts and tactics that we need to um, that we need to initiate to try to maintain our competitiveness and to counter some of the anti-democratic forces around the world. But uh, Jacob, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Anthony, do do your thing and hold up the book again and, and yeah, give him another pump. I, I, I got to tell you, I've read you know I, I read a lot, Jacob, and this was the best non fiction treatise on what is going on with China, but also an explanation and overlay of the technology, the hardware, you mentioned the Huawei situation, but also the software, the social media presence, the hacking, uh, you included it all and you're, you're a terrific writer. And so again, the title of the book, The Wires of War Technology and the Global Struggle for Power by Jacob Helberg. Congratulations on the book. And I'm very proud to have you on Salt Talks with us today. Thanks so much. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Thank you again, Jacob. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Jacob Helberg. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, they're all available on demand for free on our website, which is salt.org backslash talks, or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also active on social media at Salt Conference is where we are most active. We're also posting all the panels and conversations from our recent SALT conference there. Uh, so definitely subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter. But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well, uh, for better or for worse, uh, in terms of Facebook, obviously going through some recent struggles. But uh, please spread the word about these SALT talks. Again, I think it's very important that people are educated about uh, all these challenges that Jacob spoke about. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.